Hello and welcome to uh, another episode of the Agency Podcast. Eugene here in Toronto and... Candy Minx in the UK. I'm the in Nor- UK. I'm in Norwich. Norwich. Where's Norwich? Norwich is about two hours from London. Okay. And what's there? Um, a good friend, okay. a friend Martin, who's... Uh, we have a studio audience today. Stag and Martin are in the studio audience. I think they're just going to be quiet in the background. Excellent. If they heckle, it's okay. They can heckle or they could be the laugh track. If if we happen to be funny, go ahead and laugh. <laughs> it'll it'll buoy our spirits. Okay. Um, no pressure, Eugene, that we're funny. Um, yeah, so um, we've been staying on and off with Martin for about, oh, God, over a period since about the 6th of January. So, um, and today is what, the 19th? I really don't know the date. It is the 23rd. It's the 23rd. (laughs) You're unstuck in time, as Kurt Vaughn. I am. I am. Yes. And um, we've been having a great visit. We did an interview for my documentary the other day. We set up a little camera on the table and talked for about, oh, probably 45 minutes. And um, then we've been sightseeing like crazy people. That's excellent. I've seen some of the pictures you posted. Right. Right. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. I understand just got back from the dog park. Oh, good. I understand there's a bit of a storm happening in, in the Midwest and Ontario. Oh, we've got a little bit of snow. It's warmed up. We we had some very, very cold weather, and it's warmed up now to around freezing. We've got a little <laughs> snow today that's going to degenerate tomorrow into rain, so it's going to be slushy. But it's warmed up considerably, and it's not really too bad around here. Um, it may be worse in the Chicago area. I think it's been pretty bad in Chicago. Although some of the snowstorms were just rain. That's what Michelle and Megan told us. So So you picked a good time to be out of the country. We really did pick a great time. And no matter how bad the weather is here, I just think how much worse it is in Chicago. (laughs) And the weather's been fantastic, in my opinion. It's very identical to Victoria, BC, weather that I absolutely love. You know, misty winter rain. Love so, do it. you want to talk a little bit more about your travels and, and what you're uh, what what you're going to be up to in the in the the, the next coming period week. of time? Well, I can tell you that um, I think I I sort of mentioned one thing that's coming out. I was trying to think about the highlights to tell you about. Um, you might enjoy this. You know, we went to Stonehenge um, the night before we went to Stonehenge. I had booked a tour. I I couldn't get to Stonehenge. There was nothing. It was closed. It was booked completely. And then it came, I think uh, Martin sent me a link about tours to Stonehenge. So I looked into them and we got this tour, which I can't even tell anybody. It was the Illuminati tour. So imagine how much that would cost. Um, It cost way more than probably anybody would pay. And the trick was that we got to go into the center of the circle. And I was convinced it was a scam. I was sure it couldn't be true because everyone told me you can't go to Stonehenge anymore. I saw the pictures and I thought, how did he get in there? <laughs> exactly. Well, Illuminati. So we, um, we're, we're all ready to go. And there is some laughter in the studio audience. That's great. Um, we got ready to go. We're, no, we were just chilling. We were going to go out for dinner or see Martin and, and his wife, Ruth. And I kept getting these emails. And one said, hey, um, let us know when you're ready to, to check in. About two hours goes by. 
we did some laundry and we were getting ready for the next day we were going to go to London. And all of a sudden, I just had this weird feeling. And I looked at my emails again. Our tour to Stonehenge was actually in about 10 hours. In far away, we had to be in London. So we just got our quick, we threw our stuff into our backpacks. We left a lot of our luggage in Norwich, threw our stuff into our backpacks and ran off to a train, got into London probably about 10 o'clock into our Airbnb. And I couldn't go to sleep. I was so adrenalized by this and just excited. And Plus you've invented a word. Adrenalized. adrenalized. Can I use it? <laughs> adrenalized. Adrenalize me, baby. <laughs> so I didn't fall asleep very quickly. I don't think Stag did either. And we had to get up at four o'clock because we had to meet the tour at 530 in the morning. So we we were like druids. We had gone through sleep deprivation and um, probably drank some substances the night before. In fact, there was a nice restaurant bar downstairs from our Airbnb, <laughs> which we did imbibe, um, probably till about midnight, if I will be honest with you. And we get up and we take off to this. Um, it's right by a casino in London. And there's no sign, nothing. And I'm still like, oh, my God, I've, I've paid this money and it's got to be a scam. There's just no way this is true. Turns out a fellow comes over and he said, are you going to Stonehenge? And he was our tour guide, John. He was fantastic. We get on the bus and off we go. So we get to Stonehenge. The trick that they do is that they've found a way to schedule before the park opens to put in, I guess, make a little bit more money. Uh, put in a tour early in the day where you promise an oath that you will not touch the stones. So yes, it is. So we did that. And we were at Stonehenge around seven o'clock in the morning. Um, the sun had just come up. And um, before we get off the tour bus, our one of there's a historian that took us into Stonehenge. John, our tour guide, just told us funny stories about everywhere we drove. He showed us Hitchcock's old house. Wow. Is, yeah. <laughs> I like that. I have a foggy picture of it somewhere in my phone, I, you know, from the bus. And um she said, now, listen, many people come to Stonehenge for different reasons, um, for the history, for religious purposes, for sightseeing, general tourism brings people in and some for spiritual things. So if you see somebody just sitting quietly, don't be if don't bother them, just let them, you know, well, you, you know, I know about the spiritual part from the folk song, Old Time Religion. Oh, it has the verse, let us pray with them old druids. They drink fermented fluids, running naked through the wooids, and it's good enough for me. Yes, it's good enough for me through the wooids. The wooids, druids, and fluids. That's even better than my father's poem. Um, there was a twas a beetle, very little wings could propel him faster than his fetal. <laughs> very cute. <laughs> Yeah, so we got to go in and actually um, a lot of us just stayed with the tour guide, Wendy, who is a historian. She had so many fascinating stories about the, the place. First, they got us to stand outside the circle, just outside and stand there. Everybody get a picture. And then we got to go in and um, everybody was very polite. We had some interesting sights, though. There was one couple who proceeded to try to get in between the stones as much as possible and take pictures of each other. And I had to refrain from telling on them. <laughs> <laughs> Ratting out the Stonehenge diversives. 
the, the, the subversives of Stonehenge. And one woman, she seemed to have quite a program ready. She did all kinds of gestures off by herself. Well, the rest of us were listening to Wendy tell us about the 24 types of lichen. Do you say lichen or lichen? Lichen. Lichen, I do too. But I, but some people say lichen. Um, They're wrong. The wrong <laughs> people say lichen. <laughs> so um, there's many types of lichen on these stones and they used to brush it off and now they're studying them. I thought that was just interesting. And they think in 10 years, they're going to find maybe hundreds of types of lichen, lichen is apparently super interesting, almost as interesting as slime mold. So there I hear people That's, have told me that. Well, apparently it's very interesting to the people studying it on these stones. Um, and, and she had a set of gestures she was doing a little bit like maybe like Qigong or Chai, tai Chi. I don't know. And she was chanting and then she walked twice around inside the two circles and i said oh steg maybe we better copy her she might she looks like she knows what she's doing so then we walked two times around the circles too and some people were there was one woman she was so fascinating she just did a selfie video of herself the entire time with the stones behind her <laughs> well you know i think it's fantastic you got to be in there and actually yes. sort of see the thing envelop around you uh, way better was, than than being like on the outside looking in. Yeah, it was incredible. I have to say it really was incredible. And what was also interesting was it was, I did feel something. I really felt a great sense of power from the sculpture. Um, and then when we walked outside of it, it was also very compelling to be outside of it with this radius around it. I mean, I don't know what it was I was feeling, but definitely some solemn art viewing energy if you will yeah it was fantastic so we get back on the tour then we went to a place called bath which i found a little creepy um it wasn't a roman bathhouse that had been hidden under the ground for i don't know 800 years or something and they did have a bath that there's still a hot springs that was called the king's bath but they didn't realize there was a roman bath underneath it and some archaeological uh, archaeologists found it, dug it up. And I mean, it was really cool to look at. But it was also kind of creepy with this steamy, dirty water and tons of people in there. I was like, I just feel like this is a COVID legionnaire's disease waiting to happen. I want to get out of here. But we did like it. I took some pictures, which I will share. On the way back, our tour guide, this is a story I actually wanted to tell you, was our tour guide said, I'm going to help you all get back to your hotel rooms or wherever you're staying in London. And we were right next to him at the front of the bus, like Keeners. And he said, okay, so Candy, where are you staying? And I give him the address. He goes, well, not only is that the most exclusive neighborhood in London, it is the most exclusive neighborhood in England. And it's one of the most exclusive neighborhoods in the entire world. To which the people around us were like, looked at us like we were just like the worst people on earth. <laughs> Super bougie. I got it on Airbnb. And it was a very interesting neighborhood, which we hadn't seen yet because we arrived in the dark and left in the dark to go to Stonehenge. But we were on our way back and um, it was right by Buckingham Palace. <laughs> so that kind of gives you an idea of how bougie, it was beyond bougie. It was not bougie. It was it was up there with uh, the richest people in the world. But it was on sale, I guess, because it's off season. I got a really good deal on this Airbnb. Uh, perhaps a Russian oligarch. I don't know. I'm, I wouldn't say that on purpose. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But, um, you know, we did have some language uh, communication issues. <laughs> but it was a great Airbnb, which I did take pictures and I will share that too. 
And um, and then when we made a couple of friends at lunchtime, and when they left, they're like, oh, some of us aren't staying in the most exclusive area in the world. We're just going back to our holiday inn. Um, yeah, it was a great day because we had lunch with all the people on the tour, and there was about 24 of us. So it was a nice was lunch part of the tour, or, or did you go somewhere? Well, they stop. They stop at a pub, and we had oh, like okay. breakfast. It was not included in the tour. Okay, Although that's all some right. People, some people thought it was, and they were a little disappointed. Oh, I yes, see. That was really, that was a highlight. And the other highlight was I showed you pictures of Jack the Ripper tour, the walking mm. tour. It was fantastic. And and also a little scary because our tour guide was a historian student. He finished school, but he studied history. And I was like, why do you do this? Oh, you're in history. And when he talked about the modus operandi of Jack the Ripper, he would act it out. <laughs> like slicing his own neck and then slicing wow. his guts all the way up. Yeah. And telling us how all the entrails on the last murder were left lying around the room as decoration. Nice. <laughs> so I was like, I just want to go home. <laughs> No, it that's also, that's quite interesting that you guys are going on these organized tours. Because if if you said to me, who would the of the all the people you know, who would the be the least likely to book a tour? I would say it would be you and Steg. It's you're absolutely right. It's not my my urge, but we could not get into Stonehenge. It was it was sold out. Isn't that and, interesting? But you can um, go in the, in the dead of the early morning. Yes, and we couldn't get into the Louvre. If we go to Paris in a couple of days, we can't get into the Louvre. I had to book a tour with the same idea of someone who assures us they're going to get us to the Mona Lisa. Isn't that, that's hilarious. Yes, you I, will see I, Mona. Yes, and I think what's going on is that these are overpopulated tourist sites and they have found a way to almost stagger the traffic by allowing these off-market sales to come through. And then you're you're satisfying if somebody can afford to pay it or wants to pay it, they can go and, you know, guarantee they're going to see the Mona Lisa. I'll let you know if we actually see the Mona Lisa. <laughs> I've seen it when I was there before, when it okay. was so long ago, it was very quiet. I, I didn't have anybody in my way. There was no crowds. Um, so I mean, how long will you be traveling? Um, for a few more days. And um, it's looking very exciting. We're going to go see the other part that you might find of interest is we're going to go see David, Thousand Words, and Sylvia, who you know on Facebook and from blogging. Yeah, of course. And we're going to we're going to stay with them. And of course, of uh, David's been a, a guest on the podcast. Correct. Yeah. So we're going to do that. Well, that's exciting, huh? It's very exciting. We're looking forward to that. So listen, um, I just want to jump ahead. Did you watch Saltburn? <laughs> yes. Do we have anything we can say about it? Well, it's creepy as all get out. It really is creepy. It um, it's creepy. creepy. It's a film for, for people who haven't ever seen it or heard about it. It's a film that starts out um, at a university. Mm -hmm. And there's a young student who's kind of a misfit. He's not really sure what the heck he's doing there. And he meets this other guy who clearly comes from money. And what I thought when I was watching it, this film was about was creepy rich guy lures misfit student to weird mansion. Bad stuff happens. I thought so but, too. But that's what they get you to start thinking. But in fact, it appears that its creepy misfit has been has been lying to create uh, like saying that his father is 
dead and his mother's an alcoholic in order to uh, try to lure the uh, weird rich guy into inviting him to the strange house. Yes. Um, and it seems that he murder ensues. Murder ensues. <laughs> murder ensues. That's true. And you Without know, destroying the entire film. Right. And what's kind of cool is it's the young fellow who had a small role in the Banshees of Innishville. Ah. At the side character, he was the local boy that lived in the in the town. Oh, I didn't but recognize he, that. Yeah, he kind of played the viewer in that film, watching these two guys battle it out. So I was really happy to see him have a, a major leading role, even if it was a creep fest. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was a good film, but I don't know if I'd recommend it to anybody. No, I wouldn't either, and I don't think I'll ever watch it again either. Yeah, now, it was it was creepy. <laughs> it's creepy. The first movie she made, I absolutely loved. It was Promising Young Woman, which we talked about on this podcast a couple of years ago. So that was why I was... I, I think it's a very good film. I don't want to watch it again, and I'm not sure I can recommend it, but I know people are enjoying it, and I think what I would it's classify It's very well made. It, it's very well made. It's... it's, it's, a, it's beautiful looking and beautifully filmed and it's, very well it's dark and there's some there's some scenes in there which are kind of gross too really gross and creepy yeah yeah you know what's good about it is it's almost like for a younger generation a ken russell film that mm. that, that young kids right now can have their own ken russell kind of vibe of a movie or uh nicholas roeg or something because it's really got that psychological class struggle horror in it yes i mean it's it's sort of like Talented Mr. Ripley and Parasite in a weird way. I thought about that too. I thought certainly Parasite. And then once I realized what was really going on in the movie that, oh, this is like Ripley too. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, yeah, it could have been written by Patricia Highsmith. Very, it, very. It, it, yeah, it could be for sure. Um, you could almost imagine sequels. <laughs> so we went out to see another film. Yeah. Um, and geez, I wish we had Dr. K Cyanide with us when we went to see oh. we went to see the Iron Claw. Uh, oh, the Iron the, Claw. the true story of the Von Eric wrestling mm -hmm. brothers from the 80s. Yes. And you know, Dr. K um had actually had met one of the brothers. Mm. I think it was Carrie that he 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 told me he he met. Um so um we'll have to get Dr. K on again to to talk to us about that kind of wrestling era. Maybe we can go into that film more. At that time, when we get uh, some more background, uh, but it was a very interesting film in that it was a brothers' film, a family film um, about these really obsessed brothers in the wrestling business um, who seem like when someone says like, "Well, wrestling's fake," you know, they're like, "Huh? What are you talking about?" Uh, you know, we have to perform and the promoters are like our bosses. And then if you perform really well, you get recognized by being made the champion. It's like, mm -hmm. hmm. But the earnestness in which they deliver this information is fascinating. Right, right. Very um, cool. Beautifully done, beautifully done film. One of the brothers is played by, and you know me and actors' names. I don't know from actors' names. The guy who stars in The Bear. Oh, right. And it's also starring Zac Efron. I know that as well. So they play the brothers. Zach Afron was a really big pop teen throb actor about 10 years okay. ago. Okay, again, I don't know if actors, on, but it's very, on. very well acted. Okay. Very well acted. Now, if you want to see something that isn't well acted, 
Well, uh -huh. you can go on Apple TV and see the new True Detective, uh, Night, The Night Country, starring the fabulous actor Jodie Foster. You would think it would be a great movie or a great series. But so far, two episodes in, um, I'm going to say lots of atmosphere, poor script. The actors can't seem to find their roles. Jodie Foster is really disappointing. Um story about a bunch of weird scientists in a weird scientist place disappear and then uh, are found um, frozen to death uh, in poses that look like they're trying to escape from something. Oh. Uh, and uh, there's all kinds of backstory that we don't really know yet. Uh, right. But we've been, you know, falling asleep in the middle of it. And oh, no. it's been really hard to even get through the first two episodes. Wow. Now I heard very good reviews about it. So uh, well, now, was there's... that on Apple or is that on HBO? Oh, sorry. It's on Crave. It's HBO. So I guess we get it on Crave, not Apple Crave. TV. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It is an HBO production. And I believe that there's, uh, there's two sets of reviews that happen in the universe. There's the fake reviews that come out first that say, <laughs> oh, is Jodie Foster ever great and true detective? And then the real reviews trickle out okay. after. That's my theory. Because okay. there's no way you could watch these first two episodes, in my opinion, and think mm -hmm. they're anything like good. Oh, wow. But very atmospheric. Set in Alaska. Did you, did you finish Slow Horses? Uh, yes. Yeah. We yeah, did, too. And, I enjoyed it. I loved yeah, it. Okay. And enjoyable. Um, not, not great. The concept's better than the production. But it's still <laughs> enjoyable and well, well done, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That's oh, hey, cool. no, I did. I bought a fiddle. You bought a fiddle. I did. Can you believe that? Yeah. I I guess I can believe it. <laughs> I'll tell you. I'm going to tell you a story. And then you'll understand what okay. attracted me to this fiddle. Okay. Okay. My uncle Gene, Eugene Napik, who I was named after, learned to make violins from Grandpa Louie. And then he moved off to Chicago and he got a job working for the Wurlitzer company. And mm -hmm. we, there was a family legend when I grew up, when I was a little kid, mm -hmm. uh, I remember my dad saying, yep, Gene worked for Wurlitzer and he worked on Stradivariuses. Uh, and I just assumed that was family bullshit. I, I yeah. thought, there's no way Gene worked on Stratford. I just right. don't. The guy moves from the junction, working class family, goes to Chicago, gets a right. job working on Stratford. <laughs> Could it be so? I just assume no. Right. So then a few months ago, I see a Wurlitzer violin listed online. Okay. It's a guy, he's well known in our area as a uh, violin rescuer. Um, mm -hmm. And there's, as far as I know, there's three or maybe even more people in our area who buy up old violins and turn them into great fiddles <laughs> uh, by putting some, some work into them. Mm -hmm. And he had this Wurlitzer. And I thought, Gene worked for Wurlitzer and he worked on Strads. That's all I could remember. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I did a little bit more research about the Wurlitzer Company, this fascinating American company. Okay. Um, Rudolf Wurlitzer from Saxony, Germany, 
in the 1850s moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. And he was an instrument maker and repairer. Um, and he realized there was a market for instruments in America. And he started to import initially brass instruments from mm -hmm. Germany. And he got a contract with uh, the U.S. military to provide them with trumpets and bugles and right. <laughs> and like that. So I mean, they were they were selling a lot of brass instruments. And then he started to import violins from from Germany because he came from Saxony, where a lot of violins were made. Um, in the violin business, they call them German trade violins. Um, okay. They were made for export, and from the late 1800s to mid-century, uh, 20th century, there were a lot of violins made and shipped around the world from Germany. So Rudolf Wurlitzer was getting these violins built, and they were labeled Made in Germany for Rudolf Wurlitzer. Um, then... He that was very successful for Rudolf, and he uh, he he started to he wanted to, to sell more violins, but he couldn't get enough violins. In I guess the twenties, um, he wasn't able to get, and maybe it had to do with the after effects of the First World War. Anyway, he instead imported a violin maker from Germany. Mm. Uh, convinced someone to move to Cincinnati. And this guy oversaw the operations of Wurlitzer shops. And I think there were three locations. And they started to make violins. Mm. Uh, now they're labeled Made in America. Uh, mm. And the one that I was looking at was also labeled Made in America, Lyric Wurlitzer Made in America. Uh, and the, these violins are re reputed to be better than the ones that he was importing from mm. Germany and really quite, you know, quite good uh, violins, not super high level violins, but quite good. Mm -hmm. uh, so Wurlitzer had three sons, I think, and the different sons ran the company at different times and they had different ideas about how the direction the company should go. Mm -hmm. uh, and Rudolf, had a son named Howard Eugene Wurlitzer, and he got involved in automatic instruments, like player pianos and that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. that led to theater organs and then jukeboxes. He had the idea that if you installed jukeboxes in places and then people put coins in the jukeboxes, you just collect the money over the long right. term. Uh, right. So he was interested basically in coin-operated stuff and licensing. Uh, and then another aspect of the company, they started to make um, they started to make electric pianos. And they got quite famous for their electric pianos because uh, a fellow um, a, a fellow named uh, Ray Charles played the yeah. Wurlitzer 112 electric piano. And that uh, Ray Charles piano sound is the Wurlitzer sound. Um, wow. So they're really interesting company. Now they had, there was a third son named Rembert and Rembert split off from the company. And from 1949 until his death in 1963, 
he um, he started dealing in antique instruments, including Stradivarius. Mm-hmm. And it's like when I read this, I thought, oh, mm-hmm. Ruben Sturson, Stradivarius together. It happened. Uh, yeah. So uh, legend has it that he actually met a gypsy violin player and mm-hmm. saw the guy's violin and said, you see that violin. Mm-hmm. You need to have a closer look at that. And mm-hmm. he discovered a Stradivarius violin being played by this gypsy player, wow. Roma player, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and he became very well known as an expert on Stradivarius violins. And it's said that nearly half the known Stradivarius went through his shops. And suddenly I realized Uncle Gene did not work for Rudolph. Uncle Gene must have worked for Rembert. Mm-hmm. He probably did work on Stradivarius. Crazy. Isn't that cool? It is cool. And from there, he went on. Um, he left Wurlitzer, and it makes sense. It would have been in the early 60s. After Rembert died in 63, his wife carried on the business. But I'm in my imagination, at least, Gene moved at that time to the, the Warren violin shop in Chicago Mm -hmm. uh, where he became their violin repairer and worked for many years. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I, um, when I contacted uh, David Bromberg asking if he had, if he had heard about my, uh, my uncle's violins, um, he put me in touch with Elaine Warren who remembered Gene and Eleanor very well and, and sent me a package with photos of Eleanor's sculptures and Gene's instruments and photos in their home. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is there's this family connection to this Wurlitzer company and I had never seen a Wurlitzer violin and mm-hmm. the, here's one posted and I thought like on eBay or something? It was it was on Facebook Marketplace, but also there's various different groups for buying and selling instruments. It was posted in a number of places. Mm-hmm. And when it was initially posted, it was posted at $2,900. Mm-hmm. That's above my snack bracket for violin buying. <laughs> yeah. And then it was very quickly dropped to $2,000. And it turned out later when I talked to the guy, he had said that, um, he had discovered that those violins weren't as rare as he thought they were. Oh. Um, he was contacted by some dealers who said, you know, we get these through our shops. Uh, but when he had done a search, he had not seen another Wurlitzer Made in America violin listed anywhere in the world. So he, okay. he had initially described it as a rare violin. So mm-hmm. it wasn't so rare, so he dropped the price. And then it stayed there for months. And just before Christmas... All of a sudden, this guy dropped all of his violin prices by almost half. And, you know, and all of a sudden, this <laughs> violin is like half the price. And I right. thought, I think I need to go talk to this guy. <laughs> so I, uh, I contacted him and I went to uh, Beamsville, Ontario, which is mm-hmm. like suburban Grimsby, um, mm-hmm. to meet this guy in his garage. Mm-hmm. And... And he trots out this, uh, this violin. And I brought my bow. I played a little bit. It's like, oh, man, sounds really good. Sounds much better than a little French violin I've been playing. Really? So um, 
and it's got the family connection and the price is right, I think I need to buy this violin. So that's how I ended up with a Wurlitzer violin. That's fiddle. fantastic. And have it came you... with a good story. It's worth, worth the price of admission just for the story. Very much so. So have you been doing your lessons on it now? Yes. Yeah, so yeah I've, I've been playing it almost exclusively now. Oh, so yeah, is I'm there gonna... a little French uh, viol is there a little French fiddle on sale on Facebook Market right now? Uh, no, um, I'm gonna I'm going to um, uh, work on some different violin tunings and use that mm -hmm. fiddle for playing in other tunings. Okay. So uh, violin players typically play in uh, a standard tuning uh, in which the strings are tuned G D A E, but there are other tunings. They call okay. cross tuning or sawmill tuning, um, in which um, a fiddle can be tuned A E A E or G D G D uh, or A D A E. So this way you could pull out another violin if you were playing in a band or with a group of people and already have it tuned. Have it exactly, um, and also it's not good for violins apparently to keep switching tunings. Okay. Um, so I'm going to take the first violin and put that in a cross tuning and have that have it sit in cross tuning. And when I want to work on a tunes tuned that way, I'll play that one. And in standard tuning, I'll play the the Wurlitzer. Smart. That's the plan. Anyway. Great. I love it. Very and, good. And that's all coming along. The fiddle's coming along. You know, sometimes it almost sounds like music. I'm hoping <laughs> with another year, it'll actually sound like music. <laughs> Well, you're doing good. That's a great story. And uh, your family would be glad to know that you possibly have one of your Uncle Gene's fiddles now. Well, I mean, I I doubt that he worked on it or made it. I really strongly feel he worked for the other brother. Okay. Uh, dealing with the high-end antique violins. Right. But I don't know. It's still dealing with the same company and that whole interesting history of American entrepreneurship, you mm -hmm. know, the immigrant yes. to America, finding, you know, developing a business and growing it and it taking off in directions which were unexpected. Um, and if there are positive capitalism stories, I guess like that kind of entrepreneurship represents it, you know, um, and it interested that, me because of the family catch. I would say that's just business. I wouldn't say that would fall under any ideology. I'm sure they didn't think of it as as ideological. I would they would have thought of it as right, some instruments, I, right? Right. Yeah, but I, I like the uh, jukebox part too. That's they really sold funny. a lot of jukeboxes, and I think a lot of those little jukeboxes that were in uh, diners that yeah. was like a licensing deal, and um, they were all owned by Wurlitzer. That's crazy. So, yeah. like, the, uh, what's the uh, jukebox at the end of the Sopranos? I don't know. I didn't I'd have remember. to go and look, huh? You'd have to go look, yeah. But I mean, Wurlitzer's were the famous jukebox company. Yes. So I would guess that there's a very good chance it would be a Wurlitzer. Right. <laughs> very so, funny. All fascinating to me. And when you start to get, you know, involved in, in kind of any kind of specialty activity, the details of it become really interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the case for me with this. And And I thought I'd like to have an instrument that had some connection to my uncle. Some mm -hmm. kind of connection, like that. even if it's tenuous. Like it. Yeah, very cool. Have you been reading much? 
you know, I've hardly been reading at all. Oh, okay. As it turns That's out, I read, I was quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was, you know, I've been playing a lot of fiddle. Uh, yeah. But you know what we did do? What? Yeah. Uh, you know, we have lots of critters in the backyard. Yes. Yes. And Sheila and I were talking one day and we were, we started talking about trail cams. We thought maybe yeah. we ought to film at night. What's what happens in our backyard? Creatures it's of the 27th You know, and I was sort of thinking, do you remember uh, Tales of the Riverbank? Yes. Right? With Hammy Hamster. They put this little that. hamster in a motorboat and send him down the little fake stream mm -hmm. and do voiceovers and stuff. Well, I thought, I'm going to collect videos of critters in the backyard and then <laughs> see if I can assemble them together in some kind of narrative. <laughs> add some music, maybe add some other film bits and make a wacky little movie. Yeah, make so, a little voice a voiceover like Mutual of Omaha. Exactly. So <laughs> it's been very cold. And in the cold, we we did catch a possum and uh, a raccoon who was trying to get warm. But it got warmer last night. And this morning, just before we set up, I grabbed the... Uh, the little smart card out of the, the phone, stuck it in the computer. And there was a video of four skunks coming oh. out up from behind the shed. We thought there was, was one skunk, but there's, there's four. four skunks in there. Oh, At least four. We saw four. Poor Bonnie's going to get in <sighs> trouble. If she's not careful. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't let her run loose back there at night because I really don't want to promote Mm -hmm. interaction between interspecies interaction in this case right that's right body can can have the interspecies interaction with the cats that's right <laughs> so i've got a few videos so far and i'm trying different um different locations so far i've just been um strapping the camera to a tree which limits okay. where you could put it a little bit but it does have um a little screw thingy for a, a tripod so i think i may put it on a tripod so I could try it in all kinds of different spots in the yeah. backyard. You might need to get two cameras. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm hoping that I don't have to do that. <laughs> well, the sound of four skunks coming out of the shed sounds like you might have a lot more than you bargained for. That's well, I think there are lots of animals that come out and when it gets warmer, they'll come yes. out and they'll, they'll grub. So we'll get better videos. Yeah. So what I've done is I've set up the camera so that it starts filming at midnight and it films yep. till around six in the morning. That's and, probably the best time. Um, and it works on a motion sensor. Mm -hmm. And I've set it up so every time the sensor is activated, it shoots a 20 second video. Very cool. Um, Very so cool. like last night I got uh, three, well, four videos, but it always gives you one at midnight that has nothing. I don't know why it does that, but it does. Yeah. So I got three. One, I just caught the tail of a possum. The second one had two skunks, and the third one had all four skunks. <laughs> That's great. Fantastic. But, you know, when I was setting it up, I wasn't sure how to do the settings, and I was afraid I would set it up so that uh, it's got, like, a lot of flashes on this, mm -hmm. this camera. And I really didn't want it to light up the backyard like a crime scene at 3 in the morning. <laughs> So I was trying to keep it so it would just like, 
you know, record sort of night vision. Right. But it sounds uh, like that would scare the animals, maybe that flashing light. Well, I think it would. So I, I haven't got the flash going. Uh, okay. I was worried that I did because it um, it doesn't come with a lot of instructions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Speaking of not a lot of instructions. Yeah. We bought an Ikea wardrobe cabinet that's going to go in the basement. Oh, God. Um, well, keep it there. I'll set it up for you when I get there. <laughs> it's, I, I set it up the other day. I still have to do the doors. Yeah. <laughs> but as soon as I opened it up and I realized the complexity of this. Oh, yeah. The instruction booklet's about a 35-page booklet with no words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just pictures. And then... Mm -hmm. the, the first page, it has a picture of one person with a big <laughs> frown and a big pile of broken things on the floor. And then it has a picture of two people with big smiles and a beautiful oh. Ikea cabinet. So two However, I did it myself. Oh, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get Sheila to help me lift it up once I had the thing uh, right. built. But my God, you know, when you see people <laughs> who do incredible feats of engineering, I just think that's so amazing. I I almost get defeated by IKEA. Yeah, <laughs> I've ordered a number of things online, not IKEA, and it's a shock when you get those instructions. And sometimes they are quite vague. You're really doing it all by yourself, by com by common sense, I suppose. And you know the the good thing is that the design is beautiful. Mm -hmm. The bad yeah. thing is that. Because the design is so beautiful, everything only goes together in one way. And if you try to do it in a different way, mm -hmm. doesn't work out. But you don't realize it doesn't work out until after you've done it. And then right. you look at the instructions then and you're like, it didn't tell you, yep. you shouldn't do what you're doing, but you have to back up, take everything apart, and then yep. redo that part again. Been there. I'm sure there are people who are naturally talented at IKEA <laughs> assembly. Just like there are naturally talented musicians or painters <laughs> or whatever. But I ain't one of them. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You survived. All right. Anything else? Any good cooking? Because I've just been eating. We made a nice uh, mushroom soup. Uh, the you other did? Day. Yeah. Good. Yeah, it was... Um, Mostly just uh, cremony mushrooms, but also with some uh, some dried porcinis, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which, you know how when you make the onion soup, how you sort of slow saute the onions till they get all wonderful and caramelized? Well, you yeah. do the same thing with the mushrooms for this mushroom soup. Um, and once the mushrooms are all wonderful, then you add in onions and you make the onions and the mushrooms all wonderful. And then you add a little flour and you make a roux. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you add your stock and uh, cook it up. It's a very simple soup, but Sounds super good. delicious. Sounds good. And definitely, I would serve it at a comfort food diner. I would. <laughs> well, we've been eating our guts out. We eat about two meals at home, no matter what. Um, not eating out. And sometimes three. But we have eaten out lots of good food on this trip so far. And I'm in love with Britain. I'm in love with the UK. It's like cute as a button and scenic and beautiful. Everything is gorgeous. <laughs> of course, part of that is perspective because it's not where you come from. Yeah, maybe, but it really is visually pleasing. It really logically is visually pleasing. 
the buildings, all these old cute buildings are adorable. They're adorable. That's great. Oh, I'm really glad you've had a chance to to go over there and uh, make it a working trip and you know get to do some research. I saw that you were uh, uh, you were researching some stuff, which is fabulous. I was. Wasn't that cool? That was really fun. And and poor Steg, he went. He came into the library, but the library is being renovated. So the archive would normally be in the same building where Stag was reading, but because they're renovating it, they've turned off all the heat and they moved the archives to be safe. So Stag was sitting in a building with no heat at all. There he is. All the students had blankets and sweaters and heaters that they brought with them. He found a heater. He did okay. He had a good day. But we've been reading Epistorum in general. So what have you been reading? Well, I've been reading books that uh, Martin had uh, around and shown me. Um, about the history of deciphering uh, Greek tablets. I've read about, oh, an amazing book called American Gnosis. I read that one on my own, recommended by George Sieg, who was on our podcast a couple of years ago, who does the esoterica. And it's a very particular argument he makes that I don't think I can express on the podcast. But for anyone who's interested about religious politics it would be a very good book to read and what's going on in the united states right now it's almost like a misreading of an archaic religion and they're quoting this religion they're that sounds like america right now what's that that sounds like america right now it's exactly it he's nailed it he's you know i it. was i was on youtube the other day and yes um one of the news sources had some interviews with some people the public, you know, it was like the public on the street interviews. Yeah. And and I'm sure that they interviewed a lot more people than what we saw and they picked the most pathetic ones. But okay. um, <laughs> one after another, they asked the questions if, you know, Donald Trump has been charged with 91 crimes. If he gets convicted for all these crimes, will you still vote for him? Mm -hmm. And the answers like oh yeah he didn't do anything wrong it was all joe biden yeah all this yeah. problems caused by joe biden the, and the these issue, people were so sincere yeah well the issue isn't whether they would vote for him it's about whether or not he was legally allowed to run he, if he was convicted of anything he wouldn't be allowed to run no it's it, going to be interesting you cannot to see have you cannot have a criminal record to run for president i i think what um if I think I, what we're going to see correct. a civil war in America and a different kind of civil war than we've seen anywhere else. Uh, I think it's going to degenerate into bombings and attacks and stuff like that. Uh, I can only see it escalating. That's I my prediction. I, I just, true. hey, I, I haven't, I know you're there all the time. You see it from a different perspective. And in a way, you see it from a more real perspective than we see from from here, but in a way, we see it from a more clear-eyed perspective than Americans do, right? right. And we well, see there has like, been violence. There has been violence. There was violence on January sixth. So you're not. I'm not disagreeing with you. We've already seen it visibly happen on January sixth, a couple of years ago. So it is yes. there, and it's also longer than that with the kind of arguing that people have. I mean, it's funny because I almost I wasn't really going to talk about it, but in a weird way. A few years ago, a guy in the New York Times wrote a review about just a paragraph about the Cormac McCarthy Forum. And they said, what happened to this fun website? It seems to be politics that has torn it apart. And it's basically just gotten worse. I mean, right now, it's not even functioning. I, I thought about calling law enforcement. 
um, just from some of the really insidious comments made on there. Wow. So very uncomfortable. And um, I'm waiting to see if the webmaster changes it. You know, he's a friend of mine. And I mean, we've all mentioned it. It's It's been an ongoing thing. And what a shame when McCarthy has passed away and, um, you know, he had these new books and there's just no way that we can even have a discussion about it. It's just broken. It's literally civil war on only it's only one side now of the civil war talking on the McCarthy forum. Wow. <laughs> yeah, this just guy posts whatever he thinks. And he's just complaining about woke culture. And we're like, what the hell are you talking about woke culture for? Yeah, something he woke up on the wrong side of the bed or something. This poor guy. So I think it's already happening that that split. It already happened before the 2016th. Whether it well, yes, but well, what we're seeing is that chasm is getting deeper yes. and more visible. Like it's yes. like there was been a race war going back how many how many years? It's just never stopped, but it's been suppressed. It's been pushed mm -hmm. down, so you you only see bits and pieces of it. And now it's been allowed to come to the surface, um, mm -hmm. and we see just how ugly it is. Mm -hmm. yeah. All these people have guns, and it terrifies me. Well, it's it's funny because this does tie together. In this book, American Gnosis, that George recommended me, I just got it because he said so. I didn't really look at it, but as soon as I open it, he talks about a few pieces of literature. And he mentions David Lynch, he mentions William Burroughs, and he mentions Cormac McCarthy. And whether or not these writers are writing in a nihilistic vein um, on this Gnosticism is a direct transmission. It's an old religion, older than Christianity. Um, and his argument is it's a direct transmission of non-duality. You don't see duality. Everything is one. Okay? It's very close to Buddhism. And he's saying that there's a whole faction of American media personalities that are talking about this one aspect of mythology and they're taking it literally and they don't realize that really what it's talking about is this monster called a demon or a daemon. And that the world has been made as a bad mirror of um, the universe. And they are adopting it that the world is a terrible place. And it's going to, it's already hell in the handbasket. And there's monsters running it. When the actual mythology of it is that monster is really you. There's no other monster. That monster is your own ego that you've seen, right? So it's a misunderstanding of this it's almost like a little bit of knowledge is worse than some, than, you know what I mean? A little bit of knowledge screws you up. So they've taken one little tiny bit. It's like saying if you took Buddhism and you said, oh, well, you know, Buddha doesn't eat and he just sits in a chair. And then you went and did that forever. You would be misunderstanding the uh, lessons. And um, they're promoting their religions and websites. Um, one of them is called Gab. It's a pretty famous alt-right uh, maybe fascist <laughs> website and and they're using this kind of mythology to um support their view and i of, think we're seeing a rise of of those ideas around the world now yes and this writer right it is scary this writer arthur vesulius he's very fascinating i've read his other books he's a really great um historian of theology he says cormac mccarthy definitely in blood meridian and no country for old men may have failed by just making it so negative that he's he's working in the part of misunderstanding Gnosticism. Now, I might argue a little bit differently on that, and that would take too long on this podcast and be probably too boring to anybody listening. But it is interesting that Cormac McCarthy was in, mentioned a couple of times in this book as 
helping promote this kind of misunderstanding of Gnosticism. And I am going to talk about it in my paper. Oh, it may not have been his intention to uh, to 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 talk about Gnosticism in in those terms, right? No, no. He mentions the literal idea of the daemon in in the novel. He does, okay. And that he describes the judge as an archon. So he is quoting that. He is referencing that as a description. Um, but but he the Blood Meridian is not going to let anyone off the hook. It's not going to have a fairy tale ending because he's taking what happened to the American Indians and Buffalo and the land and manifest destiny. And he's holding Americans accountable. That's why it's not a fairy tale ending. It's not a happy novel. There was nothing happy about it. It was a horrible massacre page after page. And he sticks with that. His other books change tone and change language, but that one does not. So that's where I would differ. With the, the judge, the judge was the best at everything. Right. Yes. He yes. was the best fiddler. He was the best dancer. He was the best, the strongest, the meanest, yes. everything. Yes. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like Trump. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I was, I'm the best at this. I'm the richest. I'm the smartest. I'm the best deal maker. It absolutely does. And he gets the last word all the time, right? Because he kills off anybody that he doesn't want to exist. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so um, pretty interesting. It ties into what you're saying about this idea of a civil war. And um, it's definitely given me a different way of thinking about things. Um, he does. Um, I mean, I just can't recommend it because it's so site specific. It's so specific to this. I, I don't know who I could get to read it. I was going to leave it with my friend Martin and I realized, no, I can't leave it with him. It's just that's too much. I gave him one of the, I gave him a beautiful book by the same author on magic. Left that one there. But it it, it will be something I'll be thinking about in, in terms of what you said about a civil war. And kind of politicizing religion. Definitely. When I see this stuff happening, it makes me think, I just want to have a safe place to carry out my existence. Hello, I feel, of course you do. Of course. I just want to have a safe place. And and I see there's no safety when people start talking like that. I know. When, when they believe in a nonsensical cult leader with scary, violent, horrible ideas. Mm -hmm. I agree. Well, we're coming to hide with you. Well, Steak <laughs> and I are coming to hide at your place. <laughs> yeah well listen i've been happy talking to you today anything else we want to talk about or should i i think we need to make another recording next week okay okay yes we'll, right. we'll uh we'll update uh folks on your travels thank you um thank i don't you. know if i have anything else to say next week but that's okay well, I'll just i don't go know past. if i do either but we'll figure so it can always be a short one i'll just practice going mm -hmm. yes yes uh -huh. oh yes <laughs> and and i'll ask a couple of questions and you can just talk sounds great all right, I love you. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll be back at you pretty soon. Okay. Bye.